0: I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's Labor Day. Yeah, it is. But you know the co-main event podcast doesn't stop for holidays. You
1: know this.
0: Well, we know it. There are some people on Twitter that, that, that don't appear to know it. They ask every holiday, every single holiday. They might have us confused with some other mixed martial arts podcast
1: okay i know what you're saying
0: the kind of podcast that would just go ahead and take off for whatever day
1: look for any excuse whatever kind of day is the bank closed because if so we're not doing a podcast that's right we can't take our checks to the bank what's what's even the point you know some might say those people are in it for the wrong reasons i wouldn't say that that's not for me to say but there are people out there who might say that wow that's very that's trumpian the way you just phrased that people have said People Many people are saying, "Yes,
0: what are you doing with your holiday besides coming over here and talking about fighting?
1: Uh, you know, it's just basically a normal Monday for me, except that my daughter doesn't go to school because they'd be taking the holidays off. Right. They, they Speaking of people
0: that take any excuse. <laughs> preschools, man. The people who run the daycares and preschools of the Pacific Northwest appear to to take any excuse. To well, it. I've seen what they deal with over there. They they might need a break. That's true. It is. They do lead rather tortured lives. We got music again this week from our friend uh, The Fifth Element, music producer out of Fort Worth, Texas. At what point does The Fifth Element just become the house band,
1: basically, of the CME?
0: Well, he pretty much is at this point. Okay. For At, at least for a little while longer. All right. I mean, we'll see. We'll see if somebody sends in some tracks that that... That can rival the fifth element i feel maybe we'll turn it into a battle of the bands who knows
1: at some point either the fifth element needs to just get in here so that we can you know throw some witty banter we can have have them
0: live on the wheels of steel right i would love that it sounds like you're talking about fulfilling my vision for this podcast (laughs) that and it would be me and ed lover from yo mtv raps well
1: ever since the that mariachi band ran away with all our money. We, we gotta yeah, do something. That's true.
0: The last time we had live music in here it was kind of a disaster.
1: If you like what you hear from the fifth element, you can
0: check them out at Facebook.com slash the fifth element, Twitter at the fifth element, or soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. As I say every week, that's the word the with an A. And the number five in fifth element three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one, George St. Pierre showed up on UFC tonight in a t-shirt and workout shorts name checked Bellator on the air and said nobody from the UFC will return his phone calls just in case you were wondering how many fucks he's giving these days. And in round number two, CM Punk is going off as about a 3-1 to one underdog against Mickey Gall this weekend at UFC 203. But seriously, even if he wins, what are the odds that he'll actually turn out to be any good at fighting? And by good, I don't mean like championship level good, I just mean like worth even a portion of $60 to watch fight good. We'll discourse that. And in round number three, does Alistair Overeem's redemptive story end with him taking the title from Stipe Miocic in the champ's hometown this weekend? You know, not that Overeem seems like the kind of dude who would gleefully break the hearts of a bunch of drunken midwestern or anything like that. No, not him. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of Listener Mail. Listener Mail. The first piece of Listener Mail this week comes to us from Lotus from Texas. Nice. Well, guys, writes Lotus, Andre Arlovsky goes from being the man on a comeback to losing three straight. At what point does this get sad? Does he face some lesser talent in the heavyweight division and then show up again pretending nothing happened? Maybe bring Jared Rocholt back? Dig up Garfield Taft? Let's have some discourse about see, okay. Let's have some discourse about this old ass recycled heavyweight division. Uh yeah, so Andre Arlovsky goes out there and and uh has a spirited fight, I would say, with Josh Barnett, but ends up uh conceding the submission loss in the main event of the of the UFC fight night event from Hamburg, Germany last weekend. Now, Ben, last week on the podcast, uh we 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 had a little fun with with, uh Andre Arlovsky versus Josh Barnett, the fight for the King of Hamburg, fight for the for the the kingdomship of Hamburg. Uh it turned out if you're going to drag a couple of 38-year-old dudes out there and have them fight in a heavyweight fight, you can't really ask for anything more than what Andre Arlovsky and Josh Barnett did for us this no. past weekend because
1: uh for the first round at least, this thing this thing was 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 kind of madness. It was. Well, and really needed to be madness after the Kind of drudgery we sat through just to get there for most of the card, or at least I sat through. I know you weren't yep. about to sit around I'll Saturday morning. i have to take morning. your word for that after, once again, making the best possible choice. <laughs> well, they go out there, and I know we're going to do the thing like Lotus from Texas is doing where we say, all right, three in a row for Andre Arlovsky, and he's in his late 30s. Are we depressed yet? But he was within a punch or two of winning that thing in the first round because both guys went back and forth between being a punch or two from winning that thing that's just how the damn heavyweight division is. And who knows, maybe then we'd be sitting around asking the same question about Josh Barnett. And since we've already asked it, it seems like several times about Andre Orlovsky, and then he came back and made us all look a fool with his winning streak, I don't know if I can quite bring myself to go through that whole rinse cycle again.
0: Yeah, I would be more concerned if Josh Barnett and Andre Arlovsky went out there and, and just drug ass around the cage, you know, for, uh, uh, two plus rounds. But like, I thought that these two guys both looked, uh, relatively good considering where they're at in their careers and, and, you know, their age and, and, uh, miles on the tires and stuff like that. And, you know, the weird part about Andre Arlovsky, even when he was having what we might refer to as his troubles, uh, back in the, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011 times, it's not like he ever looked like he couldn't go anymore. You know what I mean? Like he always looked kind of good. And then a fly would land on his chin and, and he would end up tucking himself in for a nap. Uh, and which was troubling. I agree. I would not say that that's not troubling, but like athletically, the dude always seemed still with it. Like I mean, he could still good getting off the bus. Yeah, he's he was still out there looking like he belonged. And I would say the same is true today. And so, if anything, it seems somewhat like uh reassuring. I guess you might say that Andre Arlovsky is out there still looking like he can compete in the you know, in the shallow and, and old ass heavyweight division, but he's also like not totally getting knocked out by everybody. You know, he and Josh Barnett hit each other pretty hard in this fight. And there was one time uh where at least in the slow motion replay it looked like Barnett hit him with a short right square on the jaw, like a counter right hand. And it was one of those ones that kind of put Arlovsky down on one knee. But it's not like he was in the land of wind and ghosts. He was able to come back from that. So like, I don't know. I didn't think Andrei Arlovsky was about to be the UFC heavyweight champion before. I don't think that now, but I'm not going over to Andre Arlovsky's house with a support group to try to do an intervention either.
1: Yeah, the problem is that he has at times seemed pretty chinny, which is a tough way to be as a heavyweight, especially as an aging heavyweight, because that's not one of those problems that typically gets a whole lot better as you age. And there are a whole lot of dudes in that heavyweight division who can hit you once and put your lights out. But then you're right. I mean, he took some shots against Josh Barnett, did not just completely go to sleep. We all remember that decision loss to Anthony Johnson where he got his whole shit broke and, you know, made it the full distance anyway. And, uh, of course, Anthony Johnson now a light heavyweight, but like the hardest hitting light heavyweight on the planet from what we've seen recently. So, you know, there it seems like he's had some bad nights and then he'll show up and give you this hope again. Uh, but... I guess it's kind of a return to, to sense, a return to normalcy here for Andre Arlovsky, because I feel like we did kind of get swept up in the, the drama of an Andre Arlovsky winning streak. Like, holy shit, could we really be looking at a heavyweight division in the year 2016 heading into 2017 where Andrey Arlovsky is a contender again? Wouldn't that be something crazy? Turns out it'd be maybe a little too crazy.
0: Yeah, and let's, we could probably say the same thing about Josh Barnett, uh, although he came away from this fight saying he doesn't think that another shot at the title is totally out of the question for him. He's two and two now in his last four fights with this win over Arlovsky and a win over Roy Nelson. And of course, the weird submission loss to Ben Rothwell and then, uh, uh, the weird elbow knockout loss to Travis are Brown. You, why are you calling those weird? Well, they are kind of, well, the elbow one was during that streak where Travis Brown was knocking fools out with those weird downward elbows. But, like, I would not say that that is is like a standard way to knock a fellow out in a prize fight. I would describe it as weird.
1: I don't know. We, I think we've seen a few of those where if the guy doesn't get completely knocked out in that position, somebody gets badly hurt and still it leads think to it's, a finish shortly after I that. still think it's weird. What's weird about the Rothwell one? That Rothwell does that choke he does?
0: Motherfucker, if you don't think Josh Barnett getting choked out by somebody isn't weird, <laughs> okay, that's I what, cannot help you with that, okay?
1: <laughs> Fine. Fine. That's Rothwell's move, though. Can and I, I kind of solidified it against Josh Barnett. Can I
0: continue with my point now before <sighs> all button in? By all means. Josh Barnett has fought twice now. In 2016, he has not fought more than twice in any one year since 2008. And he has always seemed like a guy with a lot of interests who could either take or leave the fight game at times. But here he is now sitting relatively as, as, as pretty as anyone, uh, who's not in the top two or three of that division. Where does Josh Barnett go from here? Do you think he puts this, is this the year that he returns more or less? to a relatively full-time-ish schedule.
1: Well, he is, what, 38? 38. This 38. Is, this, you know, two fights a year might be about as full-time-ish as you want to get if you're a 38-year-old Josh Barnett.
0: Well, he's got a lot, The reason I ask, he's got several months left in this in this year. Well, I think... Although, I guess now that I look, he's fought once in January, and then he fought again in September,
1: so... There you go. Oh. <laughs> see, you, he... see you for Super Bowl, my man. <laughs> uh you know, I wouldn't say, like, if you, when you bring up that he said, hey, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he might end up fighting for a title again. At heavyweight, sure. I can't disagree. Who knows what the hell could happen at heavyweight? A couple of people get injured. Some weird stuff happens. You're right back in there. And depending on who has the title, you're telling me that Josh Barnett doesn't stand a chance of wearing somebody down against the fence and then catch-wrestling their ass? Sure he does. Oh, well, Josh Barnett can catch-wrestle almost anyone in the world. Just give him a chance. Give him a chance to slap that
0: strangle bar on you. See if you like that. Next question this week comes to us from Brett Carroll, who writes, Until the main event, Ryan Bader's spectacular walk-off knee knockout of Alir Latifi was the highlight of an otherwise less than eventful UFC Hamburg event. It was great. It was a great win to bounce back with after a hellacious assault at the hands of Rumble Johnson. But at the post-fight presser, Bader expressed to the media that he is no longer interested in working toward another title shot and instead will continue to fight, quote, whoever they give him, end quote. I've heard you and others talk about how MMA is not the sort of endeavor an athlete should be half committed to, but just how dangerous is this attitude? Should every fighter in the UFC be 100% committed to achieving championship status, or is it okay to continue to fight at the highest level, but without the the goal of holding the belt? Please discuss. Thank you.
1: You know, I think we want to make a distinction between saying I don't, you know, I'm not going to focus all my efforts on trying to get the belt and being, you know, half-assing it. Because I don't think those are necessarily the same thing. Right, no, I agree. And I can see where Ryan Bader's coming from, especially in that division where you might have to string together a few more wins. Uh, people are already reluctant to see you as a title challenger, especially when you know the guy who they regard as kind of still the true champion dispatched you rather easily a few years ago. I, I get that he would look at the situation, be honest with himself, and say, you know what, my focus should be on stacking some paper, Keep fighting, keep winning, making some money, and not think about climbing the ranks quite as much because who knows if you have enough time left to even do that. I think it's a reasonable position on his part, but I don't necessarily think that Ryan Bader is the kind of dude who thinks about going into a fight with somebody like Lear Latifi figuring, oh, you know what? I'll get a few training sessions in before this one, and we'll show up, and we'll see how it goes. I think he's still he's still committed where he needs to be.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I would say if anyone in the light heavyweight division should take... The, that approach of just, of just kind of being, I don't know, like gatekeeper and journeyman seems a little bit too negative for the position that Ryan Bader is in. But like, if, if anyone should take that position of just being a super tough guy who is going to be a difficult night for anyone in the division, and he's not necessarily going to be out here agitating for a title shot, but at the same time, will fight whoever, whenever, it should probably be Ryan Bader, a guy who, uh, has been kind of like, Deceptively successful in this division. If you don't look at his record all the time, he's six and one now, uh, with that lost Anthony Johnson, uh, in January of this year. And before that to Glover to Shira, and back in 2013. But other, other than that, all wins and is frankly cleaning up on guys about the level of co-main event podcast spirit animal Alir Latifi uh, and, you know, Rashad Evans, Phil Davis, Ovin St. Prue. These are all guys that Bader is beating and then is losing to people who are sort of at the at the top or elite level of the division. So it's not like Bader is out of it, but nobody is 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 thinking that he's about to, to fight for the title. So I think like it's a perfectly reasonable position for Ryan Bader to be in to say that because you want to be available. Right, if you're Ryan Bader, you want to continue to to make the money and 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 fight whoever is out there. Uh, and it, I don't know, man, it just seems realistic to me. And and frankly, uh, like the right, the exact right position for Ryan Bader.
1: Yeah, and the available thing is a good way to think of it because if you're somebody who's looking at climbing up the ranks, then you're probably gonna spend at least a little bit of time looking at the number next to each guy's name, who they might potentially offer you. If you're somebody taking a Donald Cerrone ish appro- approach and just deciding like the only way I get paid is to go out there and fight, then you're you're willing to kind of take on whoever. And that might be a good place for Ryan Bader to be right now.
0: We have talked about this before, but maybe not for a while. So I wanted to bring it up again now as it pertains to to Ryan Bader and and fighters in general. Like it's kind of a double-edged sword and like one of the great strengths that you need to compete in this sport, but also like kind of a weakness to believe that you are about to be the champion. We have talked about this before. It's kind of like one of the factors that seems to eternally put fighters over a barrel in their negotiations with, with promoters is that like you need to be very confident to continue to compete in this sport. You need to be dedicated. You need to be a hundred percent committed. I think all of that is kind of true, but it also seems like every single person in this sport behaves as if oh, shit is about to change. Like, once I become champion, it will be all gravy from there. And the truth is, like, a very, very small group of people become the champion.
1: What's that uh, John Steinbeck said about Americans that uh, there are no poor people in America, only temporarily disgraced millionaires? Fighters seem to have that same mentality. Like, okay, sure, I'm I'm not getting paid a whole bunch now, or I'm not in, in the top spot now. But I will be soon, and then this will just be, you know, the the preamble to my story as champion. They kind of had that same mentality. Maybe you have to to some extent.
0: All right, next question this week comes from Eric Murphy, who writes, So Lusty Gusty gets a good dominant win under his belt after a rough 2015. A, what exactly was Mark Goddard watching when he said to work as Gusty elbowed the symmetry out of Jan's face on the ground? B, How the tap-dancing Jesus Christ on rollerblades do you not get a 10-8 round after spending four and a half minutes punching and elbowing someone who only rolls for a few arm bars that are unsuccessful? And C, does this set up the super fight we have all been creaming our short pants for? Bader versus Gustafson. Hashtag would shrug and accept and watch with mild
1: enthusiasm. Wow. There's a lot going on in that question.
0: Yeah. Colorful language use. That right there is a three-pronged question. (laughs) From Eric. All right, let's
1: take prong number one. Uh, What exactly was Mark Goddard watching? Uh, I did think it was kind of funny how Mark Goddard presented it as like, as we were all working together. Like, hey, if you want to stay there, then I need to see some work. And Jan is laying there on his back going, what if, uh, I have a question. What if, (laughs) what if we would not like to stay here? What if one of us would, would prefer to move somewhere else? Can you tell me what it would take for that? Uh, but also then B, how the tap dancing Jesus Christ on rollerblades. I think we know how this works that judges have got it in their heads that unless it looks like somebody is imminently close to demise, they're really reluctant to hand out a 10 which does not seem like how it should be because there is a difference between winning around by a little bit and winning it by a lot, which is what Gustafson did down the stretch there. Uh, and then we get into C. Bader versus Gustafson would hashtag watch with mild enthusiasm, Chad.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, again, seems like kind of a perfect matchup at this point, especially in the light heavyweight division where there's not a ton of of opportunities and, and chances. It's not like the lightweight division where where you can't swing a dead cat without hitting awesome matchups, like you give me Ryan Bader versus Alexander Gustafson or Alexander Gustafson when he fights over on the fight pass. Uh, yeah, man,
1: would watch with mild enthusiasm. Doesn't it seem like the UFC has bigger hopes for... Lusty, gusty than they do for Bader. They see well. Yeah, I mean, yes, but like
0: Gustafson is also in the process of of like working his way back from that stretch where he went one and three, uh, albeit losses to Cormier, Anthony Johnson, and John Jones, fairly respectable losses. Uh, and I think that's why this victory was kind of important for him because like we needed to know that Gustafson was more than just like one awesome night at UFC 165, right? Like he had he lost this fight uh against a very game opponent i will say uh then he, he would have looked like he had, he would have lost three in a row and i think it would be tempting to look back on that awesome performance that he had against john jones uh at this point way back in september of 2013 and say well we saw everything anthony or alexander gustafson had to offer that night and he came up crushingly just a little bit short i'd be more
1: likely to go with that interpretation if he hadn't also had a great fight against cormier uh one that you know right but that's another one where he came up crushingly even, short even more crushingly short so like to drop one. this one would have been bad for
0: for Alexander Gustafsson's future and I think he came out and put on exactly the kind of performance that he needed to have where like he looked uh good enough on the feet against like I said a very game opponent and then like certainly mixed up the clinch game and the takedowns and then just kind of uh amazing Tito Ortiz style inside the guard ground and pound to salt away this victory. Like I came away from this fight reinvigorated about how good I think Alexander Gustafson is at all areas of mixed martial arts.
1: Yeah. I just think the UFC is probably going to want to plan something a little bigger for him. I wouldn't be surprised if they've got their eyes on uh, a Gustafson Jones rematch. Uh, if as it seems like it's going to John Jones's doping issue gets gets downgraded considerably by the end of it.
0: Yeah, that's actually kind of an interesting idea. I had not uh, considered that until you just said it. I'm on board. Consider away, my man. Hashtag would watch with slightly more than mild enthusiasm. There you go. Last question this week comes from Neil from Ireland. He writes, I would like you guys to picture this scene. Okay. Dana White is sitting in his mansion on the armchair with his cup of hot tea, uh, reading a handy instructional guide on how to argue with idiots on Twitter when suddenly his cellular device rings. He answers, and it's his good friend and longtime cohort, Joe Silva. What follows breaks MMA as we know it, as Silva resigns his position as UFC matchmaker, having decided he's made his damn fortune already. Just how red does Dana White's head turn? Seriously, though, (laughs) what does UFC matchmaking look like in the post-Joe Silva era? That's
1: a good question. Now,
0: you want to call—I know that we talked about this before we went on the air. You wanted to call— uh specific attention to the fact that Neil from Ireland refers to Dana White's uh, phone as his cellular device. I like that. Do you think that that makes it seem like Neil from Ireland is a flight attendant?
1: <laughs> well, he also refers to Dana White sitting there with a cup of hot tea, which I'm going to say might be uh, a little bit of regional bias, coloring your, your perception of what Dana White's up to at home. But, you know, you, cause you know how he's sitting around with that pink drink inside a thing of like vitamin water or whatever. He yes. Has. Yeah. That's what he's doing. Uh, I believe that that is the tear, the tears of orphans that he's drinking. <laughs> now, I, I have it on good authority that Dana White was not super thrilled to hear that Joe Silva would be resigning his position. But I'd like, nor would you be, frankly. Yeah, but I we mentioned this in the Breakfast of Champions, and I think it does highlight a difference in like a personality type. Because we've wondered before, why are guys like Dana White and the Fertitas still working if you had that much money? Why wouldn't you just do whatever it is you wanted to do? Uh, and then you realize that for guys like us, that would probably mean sitting around reading books and writing made-up stories, and they don't really want to do that. This is what they want to do. And Joe Silva, having decided he had reached financial independence as a result of of getting a payout from the UFC sale, decided, all right, the time for me to go home and read books has begun, and I don't need to be on the road all the damn time dealing with the constant headache of the job as UFC matchmaker. And it's an absolutely reasonable decision for him to reach that you could see would be baffling to somebody like Dana White.
0: Yeah. uh, There have been several good stories out this week about Joe Silva's journey, which is remarkable, really. Like, basically – you know how like when Dana White does a Q and A or whenever there is a like a press conference where they take questions from fans, someone always shows up and is like, hire me, Dana, like yes. yells that into the mic. That essentially happened to Joe Silva way back in the kind of the pioneer days of MMA, except he really actually got hired and got a job at the UFC. And was able to become arguably the third most powerful person in mixed martial arts for a lot of like the formative years of this sport. And is a guy who a lot of people say, frankly, is responsible for the UFC's uh competitive style of matchmaking, that he came in at a time when it was more sort of like the blood and guts, uh, let's let's give Tank Abbott a Steve Nelmark to knock out uh and kind of turned the sport into the Randy Couture versus Chuck Liddell uh competitive. Uh, you know, solid cards from top to bottom pay-per-view machine that it eventually became. Yeah. And Joe Silva's job, frankly, was a lot bigger than I think, you know, maybe the casual fan realizes it's not just like picking out cool fights, right? It's not just saying, okay, we'll do Alexander Gustafson versus John Jones right now. It's a much bigger job, especially at this point of managing a roster of fighters that is over 500 people deep, and like managing their contracts essentially i remember one time we talked about how uh matchmakers had told you that that was a big part of their job was kind of like keeping track of everyone's contracts so knowing
1: who needs a fight who needs a fight who needs a renegotiation all that stuff right which you can
0: imagine at this point would be like kind of all-encompassing
1: yeah there's always got to be somebody who needs to be re-signed or let go uh, somebody who needs a fight quickly somebody who you know pulls out of a fight and you got to plug those holes and so you start moving pieces around yeah and that gets super complicated
0: i think it, it's also interesting to point out about joe silva that like uh, he was kind of had enough power within the company and was was you know his own enough of his own boss that he was able to work remotely a lot of the time from his home which i believe is in virginia
1: richmond yeah yeah
0: uh which is not normally how the UFC does business. Like we all know,
1: yeah, pretty much nobody else is allowed to do right. that.
0: Right. We all know the, the like the the control freak nature of the people who are in charge of this sport and the fact that they let Joe Silva kind of go off and do his own thing, I think it speaks to how much confidence they had in him and what a big blow it is to lose him, a guy that you can just kind of uh depend on to to keep plugging away and doing his job in the most uh, you know, the most competent way possible. Now I did, I do wonder though, you know, with all the stuff he made a lot of money with the UFC sale. Part of me wonders if this sort of like uh, spectacle style matchmaking that has become in vogue in the last few years may have been partially responsible for Joe Silva being like, all right, I've done my thing here. Let me move on. Although that's, I'm just speculating.
1: I would think – you know, you can't rule that out that he might have looked at that and said, that's not really where I want to go and that seems to be – you're going to get overruled if you fight against that tide too much. But I mean if that was a part of his thinking, I would think maybe that was 10 percent of it and the other was realizing like, hey, this is a super stressful job. He's done it for 21 years. Uh, He told me recently that he hasn't taken a vacation in eight years. He owes his family some, some time and some trips. He feels, I think he's about 50 years old and deciding, like, if you don't need the money anymore, why do you need to do this? Like, you're not, you're not going to be alive forever. You want to take advantage of this time now that you, when you no longer need to keep doing this super stressful job just for financial reasons. Uh, and honestly, like it's really a little bit encouraging because you hear people all the time who say stuff like if I had this kind of money, I wouldn't work anymore. I would, I would just do whatever I want to do. And it seems like a lot of those people who find themselves in the situations where that's actually a possibility so rarely do it. Um, I mean, I guess I do wonder what retirement will look like for Joe Silva, because once you've done like that kind of all encompassing job for that long, filling the days might not be as easy as you think it would be in theory i could see maybe three months down the line you might be going a little bit insane although he's the kind of dude where i you know if you told me that joe silva just retreats to a giant like beauty and the beast style library that reaches to the ceiling and never emerges from it i guess i'd believe that too the question is for how is the ufc going to look moving forward i mean sean shelby i think is going to move basically into the joe silva role but then you got to hire somebody else to fill the sean shelby role and you probably got to hire a couple people. Or at least you should. Like, don't do this to people. Maybe this should be the wake-up call. Like, spread the workload around a little bit. Because they were basically a two-man shop on this with Joe Silva handling lightweight and above. uh, Sean Shelby handling featherweight and below. And then the women's divisions. Um, So, like, kind of a a 60-40-ish split between them. You know, maybe hire a couple other people. And so it's not such a stressful job that as soon as somebody gets some money, they feel like they got to peace out because they can't keep doing this.
0: You think, like, maybe on a Wednesday, a couple weeks from now, Joe Silva's going to catch himself, like, watching a grainy-ass video of two guys fighting at, like, uh, Atlantic Coast Mayhem 65, and all of a sudden he'll be like, What am I doing? I don't have to do this anymore! And I like to think that he just throws his laptop out the window, buys a new
1: one. Or he's sitting, eating lunch at a Burger King, trying to talk the two guys at the next table into fighting each other. (laughs) <laughs> because he just can't stop himself.
0: Maybe that. Yeah. I guess this could go one of two ways could be a lot of options moving forward. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do that. You go to the website com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that you miss, or that we miss. From Tuesday through Friday When we're not recording the podcast It's short, it's informational We would like to think that it's funny We think you'll enjoy it, but if you don't It's really easy to unsubscribe So easy As for right now though, we're going to go ahead and get started with Round number one There are suddenly perhaps more ins and outs than we thought initially there would be regarding the potential return of George St. Pierre to the Octagon. We talked about this on the show a week or two ago that he had uh, re entered himself, or entered himself for the first time, I guess, into the uh, United States Anti Doping Agency testing protocol and was going to sit out the four months required to to clear all these drug tests and return to the octagon as he put it coincidentally enough uh just in time for the ufc's december trip to toronto at what i believe is ufc 206 uh but this week the guy shows up on ufc tonight uh dressed like they told him it was going to be radio or at least (laughs) dressed like they told him he was going to be sitting at a desk uh and gets interviewed by the always resplendent daniel cormier uh and Kenny Florian and kind of flexes a little uh, negotiation muscle during this interview where basically St. Pierre made it sound like he would love to come back, but he doesn't have to come back because he's making so much money filming universal soldier part 36 or whatever he was in the captain America movies. Uh, and that also uh, he, his, his, his agent, which we should say is with the Creative Artist Agency, which is a big-time competitor of the new owners of the UFC. Not that that necessarily has anything to do with anything.
1: It is interesting, an interesting uh, wrinkle.
0: But the, day, he, the George St. Pierre has said this now in two different interviews. He said it on UFC Tonight, and he said it to MMA Fightings' Mark Ramondi in another interview, that his people have been trying to get a hold of the UFC and that the UFC is not calling them back, which... I mean, clearly A claim seemed,
1: disputed in that Mark Raimondi interview by uh, the UFC's Dave Scholler. Dave Schuller. Negotiations were ongoing, but we don't know whether that's actually true.
0: Right. Well, I mean, that like, both things could be true, right? Like, if, if St. Pierre's people call up and leave a message and, and the UFC just hasn't gotten back to them, like, you could technically say negotiations were ongoing.
1: You could technically say that. You'd kind of, in the spirit of things, be lying, but okay. Anyway, George St. Pierre's overall point seems
0: either borderline unbelievable or like we're on the cusp of a contentious contract negotiation because my initial thought is George St. Pierre is not the kind of dude where you're like, okay, well we'll call him back when we get time. If he calls up and is like, I would like to return to fighting. I gotta think you pick up the phone and call that dude back right away. Since, as I said on Twitter this week, that's the dude who sold 770,000 pay-per-views when you had him fight Dan Hardy, and then turned around after that and sold 800,000 apiece when he fought Jake Shields and Josh Koscheck. So, like... I don't know, man. If you're the UFC, it seems like it's in your best interest to get back to George St. Pierre on this one.
1: Well, especially, didn't we just have a question on last week's podcast from somebody who attended the event, the UFC on Fox event in Vancouver and noticed a lot of empty Canadian seats in the venue? Yes. Having purchased their own ticket like the day before exactly where they wanted it uh, in the arena now seems like you would want a guy like GSP to reinvigorate the Canadian market. There's a lot of reasons you'd want GSP. Well, yeah,
0: as George St. Pierre said on UFC Tonight, now that Rory McDonald has gone to Bellator, he's kind of all they have left in terms of firing up the Canadian fan base. Uh, and in my mind's eye, I pictured a UFC Tonight production assistant in the back tearing off his headphones and throwing them against the wall <laughs> when George St. Pierre said the word Bellator on the air of UFC, UFC
1: Tonight. Well, It is a situation that seems like prime for a conflict because you had George St. Pierre who left the old UFC back before the Reebok deal kicked in and back, you know, the UFC even talked kind of glowingly about what a good job GSP had done outside the Octagon courting sponsors and stuff. He had
0: Gatorade, he had Under Armour, he was making, we're led to believe, a lot of money.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, we did a story on it for USA Today and it was really tough to get from all the different sides exactly how much money... Uh, he was pulling in from these people, but it was, you know, he's got six-figure deals everywhere you look with a bunch of different sponsors. And even when he wasn't fighting a bunch, was doing really well with outside-the-cage stuff. And then when he comes back under the Reebok era, and a lot of these people, like Hayabusa, or, and I don't know exactly what he's deal with, was Under Armour. But a lot of them had long-term deals with him where they were made under a different understanding, or understanding of what was possible in a different age of the UFC. He goes away, he comes back and that's not even really possible anymore, you got to work something else out. And I think that it's completely reasonable from his standpoint to be like, all right, you've kind of closed off a major revenue stream from me with your own decisions that that benefited you. How are you going to make it up to me? It's a question basically that a lot of the fighters should have been asking, but probably did not have the leverage to really ask. And George St. Pierre does have that leverage. And it doesn't seem like the UFC is really eager to come up with satisfying answers for that. Although it does, like when he says, Hey, this is a contract negotiation ploy. I mean, it seems like he has an astute assessment of this situation. Like Dana White's going out there and saying, I don't think George St. Pierre really wants it. He doesn't have the champion mentality. I don't think he really wants to do it. And George St. Pierre is going, yeah, you're not going to like macho me into fighting for less money. That's just not something you're going to, you might do that to other people, but you're not going to do it to me. Uh, and that does seem like a situation where you're, both sides are set up to butt heads,
0: yeah, and how much if any of that is fallout from the weird meltdown that Dana white had after u f c one sixty seven when when George St Pierre kind of unexpectedly announced a hiatus from the sport and and Dana White freaked out, and I think maybe in retrospect uh we can surmise may have freaked out because his biggest meal ticket was about to walk out the door. I don't know, I don't know if any of that persists at this point in in uh this new relationship that, that GSP seems to have with the UFC. But here is where my own personal philosophy and the philosophy of the people who run the UFC diverge
1: in here is where, okay, well,
0: this is just a prime example because I think you can make a pretty easy argument that if any one fighter is more, is most responsible For the juggernaut that the UFC is today, and for the fact that Dana White can have snow imported into his driveway at Christmas, it's probably George St. Pierre, the long-standing biggest pay-per-view draw in the UFC who had 13 title fights and, like I said, managed to move almost 800,000 units when you would put him opposite
1: a guy like Dan Hardy. I think Chuck Liddell put some snow in that driveway, but okay. I feel like I I get where you're coming from. I would argue probably not as much. A couple shovelfuls, full.
0: And in fact, when people would bring up Brock Lesnar back when things were going well with George St. Pierre, Dana White would scoff at the idea that Brock Lesnar was the biggest pay-per-view draw in the UFC, and he would say it's George St. Pierre. Uh, If it were me, and I knew how much money we were keeping, and how much money we were giving George... At this point, I would say, you know what? Let's do one with George. Let's do one fair with George. But we all know that's not what's going to happen here, or at least that's not going to be the starting point.
1: Well, okay, maybe not what's going to be the starting point, but I, you get into a really tricky situation if you're the promoter who still has a guy under contract, technically. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, We should point out, he can't
0: go anywhere else to fight. So when he says you know he, if he doesn't return to fighting he he'll do he'll make other choices he just means he will continue with acting and commercials or whatever
1: but it is it's a weird situation because you have him under contract to fight but in a different era in a different landscape where there were just different options for him now you want him to come back and fight under you know you want him to honor his part of the contract even though you've kind of changed the way your company does things to the point where like you can't really honor the spirit under which that, that contract was signed. And that's kind of what he's saying, that you, know, you want to stick to the letter of it, he, he wants to stick to the spirit of it. And if you're going to tell the guy, you know what, either fight or stay gone forever, uh, that's a really weird situation for, to, to be in as a promoter. Because, and it's one of those situations where we see again and again promoters when they get into these conflicts with fighters rely on the knowledge like, hey, they have time. The fighter doesn't have a bunch of time. Right. Like he has to make a decision and he has to do something uh, because he's not going to be able to go to court with you for the next five years. He has to do something.
0: Except if anyone is in the position to make a legal challenge against the way that the UFC structures its contracts at this point, you gotta think it's probably George St. Pierre. A guy who has a lot of money, who has other career opportunities, who has made it clear that he wants to return to fighting, but even if he doesn't, he will be okay. Uh, he seems like the guy to do it, especially now that he seems to have returned from this time away uh, a little bit more, I guess, at least willing to, to publicly talk like less of a company guy. Uh, but you know, leading up to the incident of UFC 167 and his retirement, uh, he had always been you know he had always made gone, made pains to talk about how he and the UFC were were like partners and on good terms now that he's he's come back as you said under a completely different landscape uh he seems uh, a little bit more outspoken about things
1: he does and you know having the boss completely go off on you to the press before he's even spoken to you about what you're thinking and what you want to do I can see how that might change your feelings about how you and management get along. And, you know, maybe it would be great to see George St. Pierre decide, you know what? I'm going to go do my acting thing and get paid that way. Meanwhile, I'll throw some money to these lawyers to see what they can sort out about it. I think you probably then just end up with another settlement, uh, you know, two years down the road or something. But you're right that he is kind of uniquely in a position that where he could challenge that and he doesn't have the same concerns a lot of those other guys have. Uh, but he's also uniquely in the position where he could just say, you know what, screw it, uh, I'm I'm not even going to do you the favor of coming back and fighting and helping me make more money. I'll just go do some acting stuff, uh, and it's not like I exactly need the money anyway. Uh, and I don't know, it, it would be a, a really sad commentary on where the the sport is. I think though, if George St. Pierre and the UFC, who both know they could make a bunch of money together and everybody would love to see it, can't come to some understanding. Uh, just because the UFC is too inflexible on the contract situation as it is.
0: Yeah, I was just about to say, man, if you can't come to terms with George St. Pierre, what are we even doing? Because, like, it seems to me that you could offer to pay him any percentage of revenue and still make a bundle of cash for yourself. So we'll see how this plays out. Uh, the, The door is certainly still wide open. It seems like things are just beginning in terms of a negotiation between George St. Pierre and the UFC. So we will see what happens with that situation. Ben, do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two.
1: That sounds like a fine plan.
0: Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me this year this week?
1: Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw that our guy, sweet and sassy, Gay Garden the young vagabond. I did not. What's up with him? Well, he was talking just talking to uh to my employers at uh MMA Junkie and I believe in, in Hamburg. This past weekend and talking about his fight coming up with Vitor Belfort, who he feels that he will defeat now that Vitor Belfort no longer has what Musassi refers to as the doctor's advantage. Kind of like the fisherman's friend, yeah, but yes. a little bit different than that. Uh, and then he went on to kind of assess the state of the division and how he how he can get to that title shot that he wants. Here's his quote. I think if I beat Vitor, you have Ronaldo Souza now, and then I think UL Romero, those guys are ahead. If I beat Vitor, then I'm right up there. But of course, Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold, they're ex-champions, so with one win, they probably get ahead of me. But we'll see. I don't know. First V Del Fort. Wow. Are you fucking kidding me? How does Gegard Mousasi manage to be so reasonable about his own standing in the division, so like accurate in his assessment, and also kind of make me feel like I'm sad just thinking about it? fucking kidding me how you do that sweet and sassy
0: you fucking kidding me it sounded like he was trying to talk his way out of that
1: well it sounded like at first he was just trying to he he started off maybe with some optimism and then the more he thought of it the more like the next thing you know he realized he had named like five different people who are more deserving of a title shot or at least will get one before he will and i i like to imagine like the the tone in his voice just going down and down (laughs) as he's talking
0: it was At the end there, it was like somebody trying to convince their dad that one of their siblings needed to mow the lawn like it was their <laughs> turn. right? Well, Ben, it's Labor Day, so you know I have to send a Labor Day themed Are You Fucking Kidding Me out to former welterweight champion Matt Hughes for jumping on his Twitter this week and first uh, declaring that he didn't see the need for a UFC fighters union and then just stubbornly going down with the ship when some people called him out on it. Let me see if I have this here. First, Hughes tweeted, quote, true athletes get into the sport because they love it,
1: not for big money down the road. Again, that's UFC nominal executive Matt Hughes paid to do a Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. the One of the two former UFC champions that received a cushy office job from the UFC uh, after he retired still thinks that in a sport where athletes receive an estimated 15 percent of of overall revenue there's there's just no need for collective bargaining okay are you fucking kidding me come on fool sit down (laughs) isn't matt hughes what do we even remember what his title is isn't he like athlete liaison or something like that or like like
1: regulatory it was supposed to be some kind of like a disciplinary board position except that even, after, better, after, even better, even better. The they guy named who him. runs
0: the disciplinary board doesn't think there should be any collective bar.
1: After they named him to that, in every appearance afterwards, he went out of his way to explain that he would not be doing anything. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me?
0: All right, well that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
1: marks have been waiting for is almost here. CM Punk, the O&O non-fighter signed to the UFC, basically because A, he wanted to, and B, you know those pro wrestling nerds like to buy pay-per-views. He's going to fight the dude Mickey Gall on the undercard, on the main card, though, of UFC 203 this Saturday night, and according to oddsmakers, might be in for a rough night. Now, it's tempting, I think, to Look at the, we talked about the evolution of punk series that showed him like, you know, last spring, spring 2015, looking like a guy who very much did not know his way around the mixed martial arts. And I think we're going to see that exact same guy. I'm going to say right now, I think he will be better than that. And I think he will probably still lose. The question is, is there a way that all that stuff could happen and it could still feel like not a farce or not, not a waste of people's time?
0: Well, you know, you and I, I think have said from the beginning of this that we don't necessarily begrudge CM Punk his opportunity to come in and fight in the UFC.
1: No, there's, some, there's something to admire in it, in a way.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, like he's been around the sport for a long time. His, his, his love for the sport has always seemed fairly uh, uh, full-hearted to me. He has always seemed like he is a, an actual... Uh, you know, fan of the sport. And and after his days in WWE were done, he he seemed like he wanted, he had some interest in pursuing the sport and testing himself in the sport. And I think because of his kind of unusual celebrity, it obviously presents this opportunity that I'm not sure anyone would turn down if they were in his his shoes. And like, obviously, part of that, there was some like personal gain involved in that, which I don't think is really that in the fight- in the context of the fight game, I don't think it's really anything to begrudge him either that he's going to make himself more money and more fame by doing this than he would by doing anything else. But, like I said during the intro to this show, if you think about it just in terms of a thirty eight year old man who has never taken part in competitive sports before in his entire life, who has trained for a year or two, had some injuries. And now we'll come in to what essentially will be his first amateur fight. He'll still just get paid a shitload of money to do it. What are the odds that that is fun to watch? Because I'm hard pressed to think of. Even I'm not just like a high profile, but like any fight that is a person's first fight in mixed martial arts that when you get done with that, you're like, yeah, man, like I would have paid 60 bucks to watch that or whatever. Like that almost never happens.
1: I think you're looking at it the wrong way. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. Okay, fool. Tell me what you think.
1: People aren't paying 60 bucks in the hope that they're going to see a display of athletic brilliance from CM Punk.
0: You think they're paying to see if he gets beat up?
1: Yes. That's what they're paying for.
0: Even still, like, even if that is your expectation, you and I have been to these events. We have been to small-time mixed martial arts events, and we have watched dudes roll in and have their first fights. And it very seldom goes well. (laughs) Even if they win, man, it is just ridiculous. And... CM Punk has some experience appearing before a live crowd, and I don't think that he will shrink from this moment. But I think any person who goes out there, especially at 38 years of age, he will be about a month removed from his 38th birthday for their first ever fight. Unless he is a just a fighting wunderkind, unless he is just a prodigy, it is going to be ugly. I mean, I think that and I'm, maybe it won't be, maybe it'll be super entertaining, but I think that the way to bet is that it's going to be amateurish and at the end of it, when it's over, I think we're all going to be like, what did we just watch? In retrospect, I feel like it will be super obvious that the thing we just watched was not good and was never going to be good.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't disagree that that will be the situation, but I think that one of the things that makes CM Punk, I don't even want to say worth the $60, but one of the things that makes it a part of the package that people are going to be willing to pay for is because a part of you wants to see how bad it could be. Could he surprise you? Could he just do a little bit better than you think that he would and surprise you a little bit? Could you be in for for like just kind of a pleasant moment of like, oh, he's not terrible. He's merely awful. Uh, and or like you know maybe one of those things where it's like a a Rudy situation where he's not good but he shows a lot of heart and people are, like begrudging respect some of the fighters who start out like with their arms crossed shaking their heads by the end of it have to stand up and give him the slow clap like you did all right kid is it going to be one of those kind of moments you or mean like he maybe
0: just... he has to go out to dinner with with CM Punk's friend Lars Fredrickson, and he has to say well man you fought a professional hey, out man there.
1: it's not so bad you fought a professional. Uh, or does Mickey Gall just go in there as the cocky kid with, like, what, two amateur fights and two pro fights, steamroll CM Punk, uh, and everybody feels a little bit dirty and maybe embarrassed?
0: I, well, I mean, the thing the Mickey Gall thing is interesting because it's – you don't – you almost never see this from the UFC. This is one of the only times I can ever recall that they've had to go out and pick somebody up off the street for one of their fighters to fight who they feel Dana like
1: White was looking for a fight, though,
0: who they feel he like looking for is it. a person that the that their their star has a chance to beat like that has almost never happened before. We've said this before on the podcast, but it almost always happens the opposite way where James Tony comes in and and they serve him up with Randy Couture to just be like, see, motherfuckers. What we are doing is serious, and this heavyweight boxing champion just absolutely got his ass handed to him, right? Now they're doing kind of the opposite thing. And I think that if you look at the experience of, of someone like former Ultimate Fighter winner Amir Sadala, who won the Ultimate Fighter, I think, before he had any professional fights yeah. and came onto the scene, uh, and you have to think that that behind the scenes, it was kind of a struggle. For the Joe Silva's of the world to find people for Amir Sadala to fight. And after that, they had to make a rule on the ultimate fighter where they were like, you have to have three pro fights or else you can't be in this thing because they knew like, hey, a guy at that level doesn't really belong in the UFC. They are suspending all of that logic and turning that on its head to have this CM Punk fight because they think that it's going to make them a little bit extra money which is fine. We know that's how this thing works. But at the same time, man, like I I hate to sound like a, like I'm just a broken record here, but like odds, I think are incredibly slim. that The thing that we see is an engaging athletic contest in any way. Like, isn't the top drawer expectation, like as good as it could be, kind of Kimbo slice and Dada 5,000. Like if that happens, we'll all be like, well, that was incredible. We watched an incredible thing. (laughs) Anything short of that, like seems like it's just going to be shitty.
1: I don't know. I mean, they're they're not going to be quite as exhaustible I would think. So maybe they could be a little better. Uh I you know, I think that there are ways that this could go okay. Uh and, and surprise even you, Chad Dennis. I will say, you know, we we talk about it and it's it can be too easy to for it to come off sounding like real strong criticism of of CM Punk because we are criticizing the skills that we have seen. But I do think you have to respect it when you consider what's happening is that there's a lot of people out there who don't think he belongs, who really want to see him get embarrassed. Chances are very good that he will get embarrassed, just because of you know his age, his health coming into it, the, the short time period he had to learn all the things that he had to learn uh, against you know a much younger guy who is already training and fighting as an amateur uh, and clearly has some athletic ability. There's a lot of ways for this to go so terribly wrong. I mean, you're going to get paid and everything is going to be really nice. But there's a lot of ways for the night to end with people pointing and laughing at you. And he's doing it anyway basically because he wants to and not because he has to. So I do think that there's something to respect about that. What I really wonder is what happens later, like after this, right? Because, all right, we're all going to have some fun with this one way or another. And, you know, say Mickey Gall does go in there and steamroll CM Punk. Then you got Mickey Gall, a 3-0 O pro on your roster um you know in one of the tougher divisions what do you do with him next because you don't want to serve him up to somebody who is just going to absolutely eat him alive because then it it only in retrospect makes the thing seem even more farcical uh and if cm punk wants to fight again what do you do do you go find some do you send dana white looking for a worse fight (laughs) It it creates some future problems. Yeah,
0: even, uh, you know, I've felt about CM Punk even going back to his WWE days. I feel like when I watch him, I expect to like him more than I end up liking him. Like, every time I watch him, I don't actually find him that likable. But on a personal, personal level, like, I don't find anything necessarily wrong with what he's doing. Like, I, I you're right. I think it does show a, a, a certain amount of, at best, uh courage and at worst just sheer stick-to-itiveness like uh, this is the thing that I agreed to do and I'm going to do it no matter how it turns out for me and I think that some of that is admirable sure but you're right like isn't the kind of like the worst case scenario if you are a UFC matchmaker is that CM Punk wins this and wants to keep going right because then then what do you do do you have him fight CM Punk Sage Northcut okay obviously there you go the super sage against uh the voice of the voiceless easy to book Uh, yeah. So that's the thing. That's why I said at the beginning, like, even if he beats Mickey Gall, what are the odds that he's going to be a commodity that is worth paying for? Like, and if you're paying the first time to see if he gets beat up or embarrasses himself and he wins, but still looks like kind of like an amateur MMA fighter, are you going to pay the second time? At which point? what kind of commodity does he turn into for the UFC? Yeah. So it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. You're right. In the aftermath. I don't, I think that all of the stuff surrounding this fight is probably going to turn out to be way more interesting than the actual action from bell to bell. Uh, but I guess that's, that's why they have the fights, right? We're going to, we'll wait and we'll wait and see. Maybe he'll come out here looking like, uh, you know, the son of Chuck Liddell, maybe like he was born and bred to do this from the word go. And, uh, He'll, he'll look like young Vitor out there.
1: Sprints across the cage, jumping knee knockout over in six seconds. Then he stands on top of the cage and asks if we can see him now.
0: Yeah, maybe he maybe he pulls out the go to sleep, his professional wrestling finishing move, right? Throws Mickey Gall up on his shoulders. I'll take your word. That that's him off the thing. and knees him right in the face, and it's over. All right. That that I would be impressed with that. That
1: sounds like a real thing.
0: So we'll just have to see how it goes, I guess. Anyway. The the, the important part is that we will see how it goes in six days, right? It's going to be interesting. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. chance that a sporting event in cleveland ohio could could turn out to be a heartbreaker right no way that doesn't happen
1: can't can't be
0: not in the land on saturday night ufc 203's main event heavyweight champion stipe miocic puts his title on the line for the first time against alice or i don't know where you want to start with this man let's start. i want to
1: start first by saying stipe!
0: stipe that is a heck of a way to start Let's talk about the ballad of Alistair Overeem a (laughs) little bit here, because we all know this. We all know the song, right? That Alistair Overeem from about 2007 to 2011 was as impressive as any human being on Earth in terms of his ability to uh, knock out the Todd Duffys and Brett Rogers of the world. That he came into the UFC like a house of fire and destroyed Brock Lesnar in two minutes and twenty six seconds back at UFC 141. And then the wheels kind of came off uh, in the form of some janky PED
1: tests. Which did not exactly come out of the blue for no. those of us who had watched him go from a skinny beanpole in his pride days to a monstrous walking action figure. All while fighting in Japan for most of that,
0: Above by the way. And, Above and beyond that, he also went one and three in his uh, first, well, that would be four of his first five UFC fights. And we all know that the UFC signed him to kind of a big contract and brought him in to be a heavyweight contender. And, and, you know, by the fall of 2014, it seemed like that was not going to happen. Like, it would kind of all be over for Alistair Overeem. But since then, he's rebounded with four straight wins. The You know, uh, Stefan Struve, Roy Nelson, Junior Dos Santos, and Andre Arlovsky. And so here he is, positioned finally in the spot where I think the UFC wanted him to be at the beginning. Not, not think, like, no, they wanted him to be at the beginning because they had booked him a fight with the champion, Junior Dos Santos, uh, before he had to be pulled out of that of that bout. And he's going to take on Stipe Miocic, who is kind of a surprise heavyweight champion, but a likable one, I think, and a guy who has the potential to be a good champion for the UFC if he can just hold on to the belt. What so happens here, man? If he can man? just
1: do what nobody else if does. If he can just
0: do the utterly impossible. Yes. He could be a, a pretty good champion for the UFC. Ben, what happens here? Does Alistair Overeem complete his journey his redemptive journey to ufc golden boy or does stipe miocic uh carry on over this hurdle and then into the far deadlier the second ufc heavyweight title defense
1: do you want me to literally flip a coin or do you just want me to just kind of do it in my mind
0: i would like to hear your professional analysis because <laughs> okay. if, if if we are indeed just flipping a coin with these heavyweight fights then man what the fuck
1: well, I mean, I think it's not that we're flipping a coin entirely, but at a after a certain level in the rankings, shit, man, there's there's absolutely nothing that can't happen. There's nobody who can't knock out somebody else. Uh, but if you force me to pick here, I I gotta pick Stipe. I think that uh, you know his speed, his his intelligent use of uh, his what he has to offer. And what he can do and what he, he doesn't do as well. I think that he's, he's one of the smarter fighters when it comes to that. Uh, and I think Alistair Overeem's game is a little more straightforward. And we all, we've seen it. And it's kind of like just getting in the cage with a Mack truck. And you know that it's going to put the shit in gear and come forward on you. It's the question of whether you have an answer for that when it does happen. And a lot of people think they do and then they don't. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's a scary dude. But I think that, you know, while there's plenty of opportunities for Stipe to go out there and get himself knocked cold in front of the fans of Cleveland, Ohio, I also think that he has at least a better than normal chance to keep it moving, keep it flowy out there and and come away with a win. But shit, there's absolutely no outcome here that could surprise me. Just to to your point that at the top of the
0: division you you get to a point where anything could possibly happen. Were Alistair Overham to win this and take the title from Stepe Miocic, that would mean that every guy in the UFC heavyweight, it's officially the top four because they don't include the champion in the in the rankings. Always weird. But it would be the top five, would all be either champ the champion or former champions. And that does not even include Josh Barnett or Andre Arlovsky who are themselves both former UFC heavyweight champions. So you're talking about just, you know, ballparking it, seven of the top ten heavyweights in the world would all be... Former champions.
1: I mean, if Alistair Overeem went out there, knocked out Stipe, became the champion, hey, Overeem, he fulfilled his destiny, and then went out there and got mauled by Kane Velasquez, oh, Kane Velasquez is back, who then went out there and lost again to Fabricio Verdum, Verdum, the Go Horses champion again, who then got knocked out again by Stipe Mios, it's Stipe! I mean, that's not an unreasonable series of events to unfold over the next like three years, Chad.
0: No, the way, in fact, the way, the only thing that I would disagree with the way you just described it as far too tidy like didn't (laughs) account for any injury delays
1: failed uh, drug tests drug
0: tests just like you know having to having to scrap events because you didn't sell enough tickets
1: weird plane crash here or there hot air balloon accident
0: Mm -hmm. diverticulitis rears its ugly head turns out that's contagious yeah one of these motherfuckers gotta get
1: zika at some point right
0: (sighs) well yeah so uh I guess what we've what we've determined is that we have no idea what will happen.
1: Hey, but, all right. Hey, hey, hey.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in to the co-main event pod. Now, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think that you're that you're right, though. I, I, I don't know what the odds are on this uh, particular fight, but uh,
1: I believe Steep a slight favorite. Is he? Let me check. That could, feels right to me because I think wrong.
0: that you know if you were going to bet, like you said, the younger, more mobile, maybe a little bit more tactical guy who's who's just knocked out the champion and is, has been on a roll and and on top of all that is fighting at home uh probably the way to bet
1: but looks like steve bay's going off at about minus 130 right now and then the the co-main event in the heavyweight division you see there between Fauricio verdum and travis brown the go horse is about a two to one favorite that also seems right seems like
0: a good uh potentially a good chance for Travis Brown to sprint into the teeth of Fabrizio Verdum's offense and find, and probably get into a wild scramble of some kind, either with, with punching or grappling and, and end up losing. That's how I would imagine
1: that's going to go. So you're saying between the two fights, we could be looking at a scintillating three minutes of action and maybe we call it an early night, Chad. Hey, you're not going to
0: get a complaint, a complaint from me out of that one. If we get to, if we get to go home early, uh, I'm I'm at a loss, man. You look like this, you're at a loss. I feel like we're doing the Josh Barnett Andre Arlovsky round from last week all over again. Whenever it's the heavyweight division, I I don't even know really what to say.
1: I mean, on one hand I feel like I can I can kind of get myself excited about almost any pairing in that division because of the chaotic nature of it. And on the other hand, I also I keep going back to that same question we asked the last time after Steve Miocic became champion. The difficulty of saying, and here's the way I'll phrase it this time, the difficulty of saying who's the greatest UFC heavyweight champion in history. Right. I think if you say who's the greatest heavyweight in MMA history, the power of lore tells you that it's Fedor. Sure. And then, though, you have to confront the question of, do you not think that maybe that has something to do with the fact that he never fought in the UFC and never you know, always opted for a little more friendly spaces uh, when he had a choice? But when, you, when you're framing it as just UFC heavyweight champion, you're basically just kind of picking one out of a hat.
0: The baddest man on the planet. You're picking the baddest man on the planet out of out of a hat.
1: Because there's so many damn bad men, apparently. And you could tell him he gets
0: to take the little slip of paper home for a couple of months. Then he has to hand it off to somebody else. <laughs> Alistair Overeem comes over to his house and gets it. Uh I don't know. This seems like if you are going to pair a couple of guys in the heavyweight division who have the opportunity who are both good at what they do and have the opportunity to put on a pleasing fight, Steve Miocic and Alistair Overeem is pretty good. Like I don't I don't think that there's a lot of uh preferable matchups uh out there besides this one. I I look forward to it. I think it's going to be good and that's all that I can say.
1: My last question to you would be, you mentioned the the storyline of Alistair Overeem fulfilling his destiny. Yes, the ballad of Alistair Overeem. That's right would you feel good about that the way you would expect to feel in another situation? Or would you just feel like, so he's found a way to get away with it now. I feel like
0: anyone who has listened to the bulk of this show over the last several years knows the answer to that question. It's the second one, isn't it? It's the second one. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, Ben, this week, I'm just saying there has never been a better idea in the history of human beings fighting for fun and profit than having Donald Cerrone fight Robbie Lawler. I mean, just stop playing with my emotions. Let's book this thing. Let's get it done. Let's get it in the cage before they find the cache of bodies hidden in Robbie Lawler's basement. Let's do it before Donald Cerrone dies in a cave diving accident and just make me happy. Just let me live out the rest of my days in peace, having seen Donald Cerrone fight Robbie Lawler. Please. I'm just saying.
1: I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, now, though, I picture you sitting here in a rocking chair, staring out the window with a blanket over your legs. (laughs) And the neighborhood children pass by, and they say, what happened to him? Oh, him? That's old man Dundas. He finally got what he wished for. He saw Donald Cerrone fight Robbie Lawler. And now there's nothing else to look forward to.
0: He went blind. He looked into the fight, and he saw the day and time of his
1: own death. The the pleasure centers in his brain have just been burned out. There's no more highs and no more lows for him anymore. So now he just sits there. Just sits there quietly and mumbling, find your waterfall, kid. (laughs) Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I know you saw the story about Misha Tate out for a hike on some damn mountain. And she came across a family struggling to carry a six-year-old girl who had broken her arm at the top of the mountain back down the, the two and a half mile trail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Misha Tate, you know, defender of the, the, the downtrodden Mm -hmm. jumped in there to help and carried the girl down the mountain. Now, I'm just saying, I know you remember from a couple few years ago when I wrote the story about her basically saving Brian Caraway's mother's life by breathing an asthma inhaler into her uh, while she had an asthma attack while snorkeling. Yep, protector of the meek. Then Misha she comes Tate? along here, uh, and I will say in her Facebook post about it, the way it starts out is, today a little girl broke her arm up at the top of Mary Jane Falls, Mar- Mount Charleston, and I saw her meekly built mother struggling to carry oh, her daughter no, down Oh, no, really? Mountain, Come on. So I offered to carry the little girl to the bottom. Okay, we get it. We get it, professional athlete, Misha Tate. But I'm just saying... Someone should have edited that for her. <laughs> there are two... Two instances of heroism where something bad happens to somebody, Misha Tate just happens to be there, jump in and save the day. One more of these things happens, Chad, and we're going to have to at least consider the possibility that Misha Tate is either intentionally or unintentionally the cause of some of the disasters Whoa. she is then saving the day from.
0: Well, that is a heck of a theory. I'm
1: just saying.
0: Just saying. So, There's, like, maybe if if Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote... Was like a serial killer who ch- just kept traveling the country, uh, pinning her crimes on, on innocence,
1: on or other people. She's just such bad luck to have around, like Martin Short and pure luck, um, except that she actually jumps in there and then saves you after something happens. Like, you can't tell me that you're not getting to a point where, like, say, if you're at a high school track meet and they're throwing the javelin and you're standing nearby watching and you see, you look over and you see Misha Tate is there and you're like, nope, no. I'm leaving right now. Wow. I know somebody's going to get stuck with one of these things, and I'm not going to be that somebody. The cooler, Misha Tate. Let me. I see she has a belt on to stop the bleeding and form a tourniquet, and you know what? I'm, I'm going to read about it on Facebook later. I'm going home.
0: Well, you know what they say. If you can't spot Misha Tate's next victim at the high school track meet, you are. It's you. Misha Tate's next victim at the high school track meet. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 203. After they actually have the fight, we'll probably have more stuff to say about Stipe Miocic and Alistair Overeem. Maybe not. We'll see. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out.
1: So, like, you're, you're out there. You're playing golf. Uh-huh. You can't get hurt playing you're, golf, You're right?
0: just trying to des- uh, describe Misha Tate like the plot of a Final Destination movie.
1: And you see a lightning. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: It's time to pack it in. Go back uh, to the 19th hole and buy
1: everyone around. The poor coming out lucky to be alive.